All right, subcommittee meeting will come to order and uh, appreciate all of you attending today. Uh, certainly have an interesting agenda. And I, I would say this, uh, we'll uh, start briefly with some opening statements and then we'll hear from each of you and then uh, Senator Murphy and I will have deep and probing questions, I have no doubt. Uh, we have uh, an interesting uh, mix of countries and, uh, and of interest uh, groups represented here. And certainly, uh, I think we'll use this opportunity, obviously, to uh, learn more about the areas that you're going to and the challenges that you're going to face uh, here. And I'm sure you'll have the opportunity to uh, tell us what uh, is on the highest uh, uh, thing on your mind as you, uh, as you approach your assignment. So uh, as always, we want to thank uh, each and every one of you for your service to the United States. So with that, uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. We're going to cover a, a pretty diverse array of issues uh, from keeping the world safe from chemical weapons to national security interests in the Near East and Central Asia to our investment strategy abroad. So uh, I will match your uh, brevity, Mr. Chairman, and uh, get straight to the statements from our uh, witnesses today. Look forward to the hearing and to their confirmation process. Thank you very much, uh, Senator Risch. Wise decisions. Uh, Mr. Morton, we'll start with you, and uh, welcome to the committee. We'd like to hear what you have to say. Thank you very much, Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Murphy, members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today. I'm honored to be considered by this committee for the position of Executive Vice President at the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. After spending most of my career in the private sector, I've had the privilege of serving at OPIC for the last five and a half years, first as Vice President for Policy, then Chief of Staff, and now as Chief Operating Officer. The agency and its 250 professionals exemplifies efficient and effective government, delivering results for the American taxpayer <laughs> and for the citizens of the world's most challenging and often fastest growing emerging markets. As the US government's development finance institution, OPIC mobilizes private capital to help solve critical development challenges, advancing US foreign policy and national security objectives at the same time. Simply put, OPIC represents a common sense solution for development, for US national security, and for America's own economic interests. With respect to development, OPIC has an outsized impact on global development by bringing the stabilizing and sustaining force of private investment to some of the world's most difficult areas and poorest peoples. Over 40% of the agency's financial commitments last year were to projects in the world's poorest countries, like Rwanda, Cambodia, and Haiti. Over 40% were to projects in Africa, an agency record. And OPIC also catalyzes critical investment flows to projects in middle-income countries, where the majority of the world's poorest now reside. In support of US national security, OPIC has increased its lending operations to conflict-affected areas by over 50% during my time with the agency. And today, roughly one-third of OPEC's investments are in conflict-affected or buffer countries, such as Iraq, Afghanistan, Jordan, Georgia, Ukraine, and South Sudan. Investments made by the U.S. private sector in partnership with OPEC are critical components of ensuring that we help build solid economic foundations in vulnerable regions of foreign policy priority. In Ukraine, for example, we're working to support U.S. businesses investing in the agriculture, energy, and financial services sector. And in Jordan, 
one of our strongest partners in a troubled region, we are proud that U.S. companies, supported by OPIC investments and insurance, are providing nearly one-fifth of the country's power and water supply. Finally, OPIC delivers strong results for U.S. taxpayers, contributing positively to the Function 150 account for 38 consecutive years. With 80% of global economic growth expected to occur in emerging markets over the coming decades, OPIC helps U.S. companies gain footholds in fast-growing markets by crowding in private sector investment and enabling America's entrepreneurs and business leaders to join the ranks of distinguished Americans like my fellow nominees here today, representing the best of U.S. values and ideals. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Murphy, on any given day, OPIC has far more demand from American businesses than we can answer, far more shared development challenges than we can answer, and far more incoming inquiries for investment support channeled through U.S. embassies than we can answer. Filling the role of Executive Vice President would allow us to respond to this demand in a more efficient and effective way at an agency which consistently delivers on its developmental mission. I thank you again for your consideration of my nomination, and I welcome the opportunity to answer any questions you may have. Thank you, Mr. Morton. My mistake, I should have invited you to introduce any guests you have here or family. I, I do have my wife, Tamar right. Shapiro, my son, Leo Shapiro Morton. All right. My daughter is on a camping trip today and couldn't be here. Yeah, she's uh, the lucky one. And my, uh, my boss, the president of OPIC, Elizabeth Littlefield, is also sitting in the second row. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. Mr. Ward, uh, we'd like to hear from you on your nomination to, uh, the rep to be representative to the Organization of Chemical Weapons. Would you like to introduce uh, people you have here with you today? Well, I have no immediate family with me to here today, but I'd like to introduce the former ambassador to the OPCW, uh, Dr. Robert Mikulak, who is behind me, and also the brother uh, I never had, Robert Cadlick, who is the deputy staff director on the SISI committee. I'm honored to have both of them here with me today. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Senator Murphy, it is an honor to appear before you today as President Barack Obama's nominee to be the United States representative to the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons with the rank of ambassador. I greatly appreciate the trust and confidence that President Obama and Secretary of State John Kerry have shown in nominating me for this position. After decades of negotiation, the Chemical Weapons Convention was signed in 1993 and the convention entered into force in 1997. Since then, the international organization charged with implementing the convention, the OPCW, has established itself as an effective and respected international body. OPCW inspectors have overseen and verified the destruction of chemical weapons in Russia, the United States, Albania, Libya, Syria, and other states' parties. Inspectors have conducted thousands of routine inspections in national military facilities and commercial enterprises around the world to ensure that states' parties are abiding by their CWC obligations. In the fall of 2013, these efforts towards achieving a world free of chemical weapons were acknowledged by the Nobel Committee, and the OPCW was awarded the Peace Prize. Despite the historic accomplishments of the convention and the OPCW, chemical weapons continue to be a threat to international peace and security. The ongoing strife in Syria is a stark and tragic reminder that such weapons are not relics of World War I or the Cold War. On August 21st, 2013, the Syrian government unleashed a barrage of rockets 
filled with the nerve agent sarin against opposition-controlled suburbs of Damascus, killing an estimated 1,400 civilians, many of them children. Three weeks later, under international pressure, Syria joined the Chemical Weapons Convention. Of great concern, there remains compelling evidence that Syria continues to use chemical weapons against its own people. The fact-finding mission of the OPCW, an entity created to establish the facts surrounding allegations of the use of toxic chemicals as a weapon in Syria, has concluded with a high degree of confidence that chlorine was used in April and May 2014 against opposition-controlled villages in northwest Syria. The fact-finding mission is now investigating additional allegations of chemical weapons use in Syria. In early August, the UN Security Council established the Joint Investigative Mechanism for the purpose of identifying those individuals, entities, groups, or governments responsible for these chemical weapons attacks. Of additional concern, an OPCW technical team has raised a host of issues calling into question whether Syria has declared all of its stocks of chemical weapons and associated munitions. The United States shares these concerns. We have assessed that Syria has not declared all of the elements of its chemical weapons program and may continue to retain some of its stocks of traditional chemical agents and munitions. In sum, Syria continues to violate the most fundamental obligations of the CWC against possession and use of chemical weapons. If confirmed by the Senate, I will make every effort to ensure that the people of Syria no longer face the threat of chemical weapons at the hands of their government. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Senator Murphy, the ongoing chemical weapons crisis in Syria as well as the allegations of the use of chemical weapons by non-state actors in both Syria and Iraq is a potent reminder of the essential role of the Chemical Weapons Convention and the OPCW in promoting international peace and security. In years to come, the world will continue to look to the OPCW as the repository of technical expertise. <clears throat> the OPCW will face many challenges in the years to come to achieve the promise of a world filled with chemical weapons. Free, excuse me, free of chemical weapons. We must achieve universal membership. We must counter the ongoing threat of chemical weapons terrorism. We must prevent the reemergence of chemical weapons. If concerned by the Senate, I will work to ensure that the OPCW achieves these goals and remains an effective force for promoting international peace. I welcome the opportunity to answer any questions you may have. Or that was very comprehensive. We appreciate that. Thank you much, Mr. Modi. Uh, You've been nominated uh, to uh, be the ambassador to Libya. Could you enlighten us, please? Please. The members of my family who are here today first. Please. I'd like to introduce my wife, Tanya, who's a retired member of the Foreign Service, my son, Christopher, who works at USAID, my dad, who is a retired ambassador, and unfortunately, my daughter can't be here because she's accompanying her husband on assignment to our embassy in Kuwait. Thank you. A lot of service in your family, Mr. Bodie. Yes. Chairman Rich, Ranking Member Murphy, members of the committee, it is a privilege to appear before you today as the President's nominee to be the next United States Ambassador to Libya. I am grateful for the trust placed in me by President Obama and Secretary Kerry. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with this committee and colleagues from across the U.S. government to promote a strong relationship between the United States and Libya 
during this challenging moment in Libyan history. Four years after the uprising of the Libyan people led to the fall of Gaddafi and his brutal dictatorship, Libyans continue to face enormous challenges as they work to establish a government of national accord and build institutions that are inclusive and representative of all Libyans. The Libyan political dialogue has required determination and compromise at every stage, and the process of political reconciliation in Libya will be a long journey. The recent October 8th announcement of proposed leadership for a government of national accord resulting from these Libyan negotiations was a welcome step in the process, and we urge all parties to endorse the agreement as quickly as possible. The rise of ISIL aligned groups, human smugglers, and dramatically reduced oil production demonstrate the immediate need for a unified national Libyan government that can effectively partner with the United States and the international community to begin the hard work of restoring peace and security in Libya. Over the course of my career, I have led interagency teams in challenging environments, and I understand the difficulties and opportunities ahead. My experience as the U.S. Ambassador to Nepal during and after the tragic earthquake in April, as Assistant Chief of Mission for Assistance in Baghdad, and as Deputy Chief of Mission in Pakistan, confirm my belief that strong interagency coordination and a cohesive country team are the foundations of successful United States missions overseas. Mr. Chairman, I make it a point to come to the Hill when I am back in Washington, and I believe that regular interaction, whether at post or in Washington, is critical to our continued success. Frank exchanges of accurate information that build trust are essential for the Congress to make difficult resource and policy choices. If confirmed, I look forward to continuing this relationship. I have always been deeply conscious of the most important duty I have as Chief of Mission, ensuring the safety and security of all Americans in Libya, and particularly those serving under my leadership. While our mission is no longer physically located in Tripoli, balancing safety considerations with a deep desire to engage Libyans will be an essential task, one for which, if confirmed, I will be responsible and accountable. Libya has the potential to play a vital role in regional security cooperation and trade over the long term. Establishing a safe and secure environment must be the first step Libyans take to move their country forward. Continuing to support the establishment of a stable, prosperous, and democratic Libya is consistent with the values and strategic interests of the United States. If confirmed, I will work with Libyan partners to assist in the establishment of that environment. In closing, I want to note that anyone who represents the United States abroad has a unique responsibility. More often than not, we are the only nation that has the will, the values, and the resources to solve problems, help others, and to be a positive force for change in our challenged world. Being nominated to serve as an ambassador representing our nation is in itself an incredible honor. With the consent of the Senate, I look forward to assuming this responsibility again while serving as the next U.S. Ambassador to Libya. Thank you for this opportunity to appear before you. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much, Mr. Bodhi. Mr. Sievers, you've been nominated uh, the Ambassador to uh, Oman. And uh, uh, please, you have the floor. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, if I may, I'd like to introduce my family members please. who are here today. 
my wife, Michelle Huda Raphael, our son, Samuel, my son, David, and my daughter, Miriam. Uh, and I'm very grateful for their uh, support and their attendance at this hearing. Thank you. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Murphy, and members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you as President Obama's nominee to serve as Ambassador to the Sultanate of Oman. I am deeply grateful to President Obama and Secretary Kerry for the trust they have placed in me, and if confirmed, I look fo uh, forward to working closely with you and other members of Congress to advance the interests of the United States and Oman. Mr. Chairman, I have spent much of my 34-year Foreign Service career working in the Middle East. If confirmed as U.S. Ambassador to Oman, my highest priority will be protecting the dedicated men and women at our mission, as well as all Americans living in and visiting Oman. I will work with our Omani partners to ensure that American businesses realize the full benefits of the U.S.-Oman Free Trade Agreement. I will engage with a wide range of Omani citizens so that Oman may continue to make strides in establishing an independent civil society. Rest assured, I will employ the full range of diplomatic tools to deepen our cooperation with Oman on counterterrorism and counterpiracy issues. In recent years, Oman has demonstrated the value of its relationship to the United States by helping to facilitate the nuclear negotiations with Iran, securing the release of American detainees in Yemen and hikers held by Iran, by Iran, and by assisting the evacuation of American government personnel from Yemen. Overlooking the Strait of Hormuz, Oman works closely with the United States, and especially the United States Navy, to promote freedom of navigation in a region through which approximately 30% of seaborne global oil exports flow. The United States and Oman maintain excellent security cooperation to ensure that the Strait of Hormuz remains open to international trade. Since the implementation of the United States-Oman Free Trade Agreement in 2009, U.S. private industry has received broad access to the rapidly developing Omani market. The United States held a billion-dollar trade surplus with Oman in 2014. If confirmed, I will work to ensure American private industry enjoys free access to an Omani market eager to purchase American goods and services. Sultan Qaboos has gradually increased the level of representation Omani citizens hold in government. If confirmed, I will support the efforts of the people and government of Oman to establish a more inclusive and transparent government and to strengthen civil society. Finally, I would like to once more express my appreciation for this opportunity to appear before the committee today. If confirmed, I look forward to welcoming members of Congress and congressional staff to Oman. I have served in a number of war and conflict zones during my career and I can assure the committee I do not take lightly the responsibility an ambassador holds to protect the men and women serving our country overseas. If confirmed, my highest priority will always be the safety and security of every American in Oman, as well as the advancement of our national interests, and I pledge to carry out these duties to the best of my ability. I welcome the opportunity to answer any questions you might have. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Sievers. Uh, 
Ms. Millard, uh, you've been uh, nominated uh, to be ambassador to uh, Tajikistan, and the floor is yours for introductions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. In the interest of time, I will summarize my statement, but ask that the full statement be submitted for the record. Certainly. Um, and I would like to say of my five children, my oldest daughter, Charlotte, and my youngest son, Richard, were unable to come today. But the other three are here with their spouses, uh, my daughter, Olivia, my daughter, Sasha, and my son, James. And we also have Alex, age four, who is uh, my granddaughter here today. Thank you so um, much. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Murphy, it's a great honor and privilege to appear before you today as the United States Ambassador-designate to the Republic of Tajikistan. I deeply appreciate the opportunity to testify this afternoon, and I'm humbled by the confidence President Obama and Secretary Kerry have placed in me. If confirmed, I look forward to working with this committee and all members of Congress to advance the interests of the United States in Tajikistan. I'd like to recognize the members of my family without whom my 23-year career in the Foreign Service would not have been possible. Above all, my husband Vaughn, who retired after serving in the Navy for 30 years and became my most enthusiastic and steadfast teammate during our tours in Prague, Copenhagen, New Delhi, Kathmandu, Casablanca, and Astana. Vaughn tragically died after a brief illness last year but he knew this posting to Tajikistan was a possibility and was excited at the project prospect. And our five children and six grandchildren are a testament to our partnership. Throughout my career, I've focused on ensuring the security and safety of American citizens and advancing the interests and values of the United States and the American people. Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, I'll bring the same dedication to our embassy in Dushanbe. Tajikistan is a challenging post in a dynamic region. Per capita, it is in the poorest quarter of countries in the world. It has a porous 800-mile-long border with Afghanistan. And problems like illegal narcotics trade, terrorism, and violent extremism in the region are deeply concerning. If confirmed, I'll work to strengthen our partnership with Tajikistan to address these serious challenges. Tajikistan, given its difficult neighborhood, must maintain its security and stability, goals which the United States strongly supports. But the security, stability, and prosperity that Tajikistan seeks can only come with a strong commitment to improving human rights and governance, respect for the rule of law, and protection and promotion of its people's rights and freedoms. These are critical components of security and stability for any country. If confirmed, I will encourage the government to promote and protect the space for civil society and for international and domestic non-governmental organizations to register and function freely. Being an American ambassador is not only a great honor, but also a great responsibility. If confirmed, I'll endeavor to be a good steward of the American people's trust and property, and a caring leader for my embassy colleagues, and a faithful representative of our values and our interests. I'll also ensure that our mission continues to provide U.S. citizens residing in or visiting Tajikistan the highest quality of services and our steadfast protection in times of need. 
Communication and trust build the best relationships. This applies not only to our engagement with foreign governments and societies, but also to engagement with Congress. If confirmed, I will always be available to this committee, its members and staff, to discuss the, and work with you in pursuit of our national interests in Tajikistan. Again, I thank you for this opportunity, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Millard. I'm going to go through and ask uh, questions of each of you because I, I have individual questions, and uh, I think there's matters that you have in your mind that are of interest to us, and uh, you can probably enlighten us on. And I want to, um, I want to start, uh, Mr. Morton, uh, with you. Uh, you are undoubtedly aware of the fact that uh, uh, a number of us here in the Senate uh, wrote a letter raising concerns about uh, conflict of interest uh, on, a, on a director. And uh, are you familiar with the letter that I'm talking about, the response that was made to it? I believe I am, sir, yes. What, what um, first of all, do you, do you think that the concerns that we have, we, we were concerned not only about a conflict of interest, but an apparent conflict of interest. And, you know, we as Americans, as we go around the world, try to persuade people that the, uh, the only way society can prosper as if indeed uh, you get rid of corruption and you get rid of uh, any type of undue influence and for that matter the appearance of it. So we were concerned not only uh, about uh, what appeared to be a conflict of interest and could have been a conflict of interest but also the appearance of it. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, Senator, thank you for the question. I, I believe when we looked into the matter that was raised uh, by, by you and several other uh, senators, we were, uh, we were very uh, comfortable with the arrangement that, that OPIC had supported in this case, and I believe that the director in question had recused himself of all relevant matters during the course of his time on the, uh, uh, serving on the board. So I, 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 we, look, we took a close look at it and, and felt that we had, uh, we had followed both uh, process-related uh, matters well, but also we had stayed on the proper side of, of the perception issue. I'd be, I'd be happy to follow up in more detail uh, w with a further conversation uh, if, if, that, if our response was not to your satisfaction. Well, I, I think uh, probably a little more detail wouldn't hurt. Um, I, I fully appreciate that the, that the person in question uh, recused uh, himself from the actual uh, vote on something, but, uh, you know, again, the appearance is very difficult to shake under these circumstances because obviously if you're a co-director with other directors, you have influence over them, you have access to them that others don't. And so uh, I'd, I'd be interested, you don't need to do this now, you can take the question for the record, but I'd, I'd appreciate some follow-up on it uh, because as I say, that, that really doesn't resolve the, the issue of the uh, uh, appearance uh, versus the actual conflict. So. Senator, I'd be happy to get back to you. And I, I would say that, you know, with a portfolio of 600 projects across 105 countries around the world, um, we are constantly looking at uh, investments that have uh, complex structures, uh, boards of directors, uh, uh, governance structures that we, we do very, very careful due diligence on uh, to avoid the very issue that you're raising here. So I, we take these issues quite seriously, and I'd be happy to follow up with you in more detail. Thank you, Mr. Morton. Mm -hmm. um, Mr. Ward, uh, you have a uh, responsibility that uh, is enormous, really, when you're dealing with uh, the product or the, the, the uh, material that you're dealing with. Um, 
we're seeing some open source reporting that uh, mustard gas is being used uh, in uh, Syria. Can you uh, enlighten us uh, any on that, uh, realizing we're not in a classified setting, but uh, is there anything you can say in an open source uh, sort of fashion that would uh, talk about that? Um, we certainly have had concerns for years that ISIL has been seeking such weapons. And there have been allegations and reports that they have actually used these types of weapons. It's something the United States is looking at very seriously because it involves ISIL. As you know, Mr. Chairman, there is an intelligence dimension to all of this. But something I can bring to the attention to the committee is that the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, its fact-finding mission, one of the missions has focused on the allegations that such chemicals were used in August. And we expect by the end of this week for that fact-finding mission to issue a public report on the information it has acquired on this subject. It will not address the issue of attribution. Uh, the mandate of the group does not extend to assigning responsibility. But it will seek to either confirm or refute the allegations that these chemicals will be used. And I think you will find their report to be a very helpful open source document. If you've seen the previous report that was done by the fact-finding mission on the April-May 2014 incidents, you know, it is uh, hundreds of pages long, very detailed in information based on interviews and the like. And I know that some of your staff colleagues have found it to be very, very helpful as an open source document. Hopefully by the end of this week that will be issued and be able to provide you with a much more open type of uh, access that will not involve classified information. Thank you, Mr. Ward. Um, I think everyone is aware because of the reporting uh, of the use of chemical weapons in Syria. Uh, after Syria, what would be the next country that you would be most concerned about? Obviously, I think, would you agree with me, Syria would be at the top of the list of concern in today's world? Am I right or wrong on that? Absolutely. This is a country that we believe has not fulfilled its obligations to uh, declare and destroy all of its chemical weapons, and there's mounting evidence that it's been using chemical weapons yeah. against its own citizens. And, and so what, what country would you go to after that? Is there anybody close to that, or do you kind of drop down the scale quite a ways? Well, you know, what's interesting is you know, we, we have concerns about some countries which are reported in our classified compliance report but you know, use of chemical weapons by countries is something that really has not taken place since World War II. The real immediate threat of use versus the concerns about countries possessing chemical weapons is non-state actors. You know, we wonder if a new era of chemical terrorism has come along. And it'll be interesting to see if these allegations that ISIL has been using chemical weapons uh, turn out to be true because we may be worrying much more about terrorists who, when they acquire a chemical weapon, immediately use it versus countries of concern that acquire a chemical weapons capability, but it sits on the shelf and never becomes an immediate threat to the world community. So, Senator, I worry most about non-state actors, and I hope we can put that genie back in the bottle and that we're not seeing a new era now of chemical terrorism. Given the... Um uh, lack of um, moral turpitude of the people uh, who are doing this in Syria. Uh, 
I, I would say that uh, I'm not very optimistic that, uh, that uh, some type of uh, moral uh, obligation would drive their decision making. Um, let, let me ask this. Um, as far as, uh, you, you said no country had used it, no state actors had used it since World War II. Are you accepting Syria given the, the uh, use uh, uh, near uh, Damascus? Actually, uh, no, I am. And let me correct myself. I'm forgetting the obvious example of the Iran-Iraq war mm -hmm. and the allegations that Iraq and then later Iran exchanged large amounts of chemical weapons between 1980 and 1988. Forgive my historical lapse. Appreciate that. What, um, do, do you feel, uh, does your organization feel like they have a, uh, at least somewhat of a decent handle on how much uh, uh, chemical, uh, how, what, what, what is the quantity of chemical weapons that are left in Syria after the supposed uh, removal of the chemical weapons? They do not, uh, Mr. Chairman, but they believe that the answers that the Syrian government has provided about what happened to chemicals that they allegedly destroyed a few years ago, they just can't document anything, and there are grave suspicions that they have not come clean about all their capabilities. We do believe the bulk of their program was declared, but there remain very serious suspicions that a residual chemical weapon capability has been maintained by Syria. And thankfully, the organization established a very dedicated group of experts to focus on this issue. Just a few weeks ago, they reported that they have serious concerns about the veracity of Syria's declaration with respect to chemical agents, to the munitions that would deliver them, and the facilities that were involved in research and development and production. So the international organization has clearly identified a serious problem. Unfortunately, they don't know where the hidden weapons are. But it's important that they put an international spotlight on it. The last thing any of us want, and most especially myself, is for Syria to hold itself out as a member in good standing of the Chemical Weapons Convention. They are not, Senator. We appreciate that. Um, it, can you comment at all on the, the transfer uh, obviously not voluntarily, from the Syrian government to ISIS or ISIL or, or Daesh, whatever you want to call it? In a classified context, that could be addressed. But Thank let me you. just say that um, let us not think that there was any deliberate transfer from, by the, from the Assad regime to ISIL. These are enemies. Obviously, uh, any acquisition that took place was not intended. But uh, in a classified context, be happy to provide more information, Senator. Mr. Bodhi, uh, we, we all know that uh, uh, Libya is attempting to form a government. Uh, can you enlighten us uh, on the status of that? Yes. Mr. Chairman, uh, we've been making with our international partners and our regional partners in the area some progress over the last few weeks to establish a government of national accord. We were very hopeful on October 8th, as I mentioned in my statement, that when the Special Representative of the UN announced the possible uh, officers of the new government, that that would move forward quickly. It hasn't, but we are still hopeful that this is the direction it will take. We're not there yet. All of the regional partners, our international partners, there's still dialogue going on. 
my counterpart, Special Representative Jonathan Weiner, is just out in the region doing outreach on this stuff. But our goal is that they will work towards establishing this government of national accord. We feel it's critical because without an inclusive government that brings in all the parties, as many parties as possible, we don't see that substantial progress can be made. What, what's your personal assessment of the prognosis of that? Do they succeed? I think it has the potential to succeed, but it's going to be a very difficult road. And like everything, even reaching, its, reaching agreement, my own sense, Senator, is that that will be easier than implementation, but that's why I'm going there. Um, Mr. Sievers, uh, regarding Oman, um, you didn't mention or, or refer to in your opening statement uh, succession uh, of the Sultan. Could you talk about that for a minute? And, and your concerns in that regard, if you um, have any. Yes, Senator. Thank you very much. Um, succession, obviously, is a, is a very important question. Uh, the Sultan has been in power uh, since 1970. Um, he's established uh, most of the institutions uh, that currently exist in Oman. He's widely viewed as kind of the, the father of, of the, the modern Omani state. Um, and uh, Due to his, his health, uh, there's certainly the potential uh, that he could leave the scene um, in, in the near future. There is a mechanism in place. Uh, the, there's something called the Ruling Family Council um, that would meet uh, if the uh, uh, position became vacant suddenly. And uh, they are to select a successor because the Sultan has no children of his own. Um, should they fail uh, to reach a consensus on, on who that individual would be, uh, there is a sealed letter uh, from the Sultan uh, to the council uh, that would be opened in the event uh, that uh, they do not reach agreement uh, among themselves. Um, so I think we're, we're uh, I'm pretty confident that they will uh, manage this process uh, but I, I do acknowledge that it's, it's untested um, and uh, it, it could pose a challenge for them. Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. Um, finally, uh, uh, Ms. Millard, I think one of the things for those of us that serve on both Foreign Relations and the Intelligence Committee is the, is the uh, flow of uh, fighters uh, from uh, Tajikistan uh, to ISIS. What, what can you tell us about that and what, uh, what, what's a prognosis of, uh, of stemming that? Uh, Mr. Chairman, it is indeed a worrying phenomenon. Uh, the number that the Tajiks have given to us is about 600 uh, as, of, as of now. Uh, and if confirmed, I would be focusing on this important issue and to deepen our already robust uh, relationship uh, with the Tajik government to address issues such as this one. Do, do the uh, uh, Tajiks have any, uh, uh, any system uh, in place uh, to do anything about this? My understanding is that some of the recruitment is actually happening in Russia. Uh, the guest workers, as you may know uh, many, many young Tajiks actually are guest workers in Russia. And so the, the problem is most likely happening in Russia. 
Um, but as far as what the Tajiks themselves are doing within Tajikistan, I will be looking into that and hopefully become smarter on that once, if confirmed, I get to Dushanbe. Thank you, Ms. Millard. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. As the uh, father of a seven-year-old and a three-year-old, let me remark on how r remarkably well-behaved uh, the <laughs> youngsters are that are here with us. Uh, frankly, they will do uh, more credit uh, to the United States in these new roles uh, uh, than their, their, their parents, given their disposition. Uh, thank you all for uh, being here today. Let me sort of go down the row in the same order to let everybody catch the, their breath. Um, uh, Mr. Morton, you and I had the chance to talk about this a little bit, but in open session, um, you know, I'm intrigued by the messages that we send uh, as uh, China stands up uh, the uh, AIIB, um, uh, providing new access to capital, new pathways to alliances and partnerships with countries all around the world, and we sit here today still with the inability to simply reauthorize the Exim Bank. Um, tell us a little bit uh, about um, what uh, this new Asian Development Bank means for the United States, what this new competition may mean for the work that you do and recommendations for how we should be thinking about it. It sort of bewilders me that we don't understand that the military is not the only way that you project your power as a nation abroad, that um, these days, especially, uh, your economic reach matters as much, if not more, than your military reach. And uh, you have limited resources. But uh, tell us what we should be learning from what the Chinese are doing. Thank you for the question. You know, I think the creation of the AIIB is, is only the latest in a, in a longer series of developments that have occurred within the development finance arena over the last decades. Just briefly for context, you know, when OPEC was carved out of USAID 40 years ago, the vast majority of US flows overseas was in the form of official development aid or grants, seven to one grants to foreign direct investment. Now it's the exact opposite, 10 times more U.S. foreign direct investment flows out than does official development assistance. So the interaction that the U.S. economy and the U.S. nation is having with developing countries <laughs> is very much driven now by foreign direct investment and by the business ambassadors that are our, uh, our, our businesses and our companies that are investing overseas. So even before you had the creation of the AIB, you had uh, governments like uh, Germany, the, the Netherlands, et cetera, significantly enhancing the ability of their development finance institutions to promote foreign direct investments overseas. Now, I think the AIB is certainly the, the latest and probably the most uh, consequential of these developments. Um, uh, and, and it's one that I think we need to understand. Uh, we need to look at, look at carefully and understand. The amount of liquidity that China will be uh, injecting into uh, uh, overseas markets will be, is already significant and will continue to grow. And I think there's a question of what, if any, U.S. response there might, might be. I will say that when OPIC invests alongside U.S. companies in overseas markets, we do so with a set of environmental, labor, social, human rights standards that have been set by Congress and that are far uh, superior to those that are uh, that, than those that are being promulgated currently by, by the Chinese banks. Uh, and I really do think that we lead by example when we invest overseas. But does that 
pose the risk of a race to the bottom is you have more entrance into these global capital markets that come with, with, with sort of political agendas rather than simply financial agendas, the expectation that they'll get their money back with return. Uh, does that jeopardize the high standards that we traditionally have set? So I mentioned before that over 40% of our portfolio last year was in Africa. And I've probably spent more time in Africa during my five and a half years with the agency than on any other continent. There is not a country or capital that you can go to on the African continent where the, uh, the, the government uh, uh, is not crying out for U.S. investment and U.S. standards and U.S. values and U.S. leadership. And so there's always a temptation, I think, for a race to the bottom, but I think that countries that have come into contact with U.S. investors and U.S. capital understand the different standards that come with that and crave it. And there really is a, a strong desire in embassy after embassy that we've spent time with for U.S. companies to be actively investing into these markets. Thank you, Mr. Morton. Thank you. Um, Mr. Ward, tell us a little bit more about chlorine uh, and about the role uh, of OPCW uh, in addressing these new reports of the use of that chemical inside Syria. Um, what's interesting is that the first major use ever in World War I of a chemical weapon was chlorine. Uh, in April of 1915, the Germans at Ypres released many cylinders filled with chlorine gas. It's heavier than air. It went across no man's land and down into the trenches, killing thousands. But very quickly thereafter, both the Allies and the Axis powers developed much better chemicals than chlorine to use. Phosgene, mustard, uh, lewisite, and then eventually, of course, uh, later came uh, nerve agents after World War II. So chlorine, we all think of it as the thing associated with your pool. Uh, it's a cleansing agent. It's used around the world in order to sanitize water, to turn it into drinking water. So it's ubiquitous, and it's all over Syria for that purpose. Well, the Syrians evidently decided to take chlorine canisters, wrap detonation cord around them, and turn them into improvised barrel bombs, which we believe uh, were very likely rolled out of helicopters. There's strong evidence from the fact-finding mission report from April and May of 2014 that all of the witnesses uh, who survived the attacks uh, with the chlorine bombs, helicopters were overhead whenever this happened. Well, only the Syrian government has helicopters. The opposition does not. And it's a very strong, incriminating indicator. What happens, though, is you know, when the bombs start to drop, people naturally go into the basement. And the chlorine, being heavier than air, goes down into the basement. It hasn't killed in hundreds or thousands the way nerve agent can. But the systematic and repeated use, the, the number of casualties is accumulating more and more over time. And it's become a terror weapon to be used by the Syrian government. And so to, to your role, this is not on the list of, uh, educate me as to, as, to, as to what your organization can do and what role you play. Um, there's a list that goes with the treaty, and that list of chemicals defines not what a chemical weapon is, but what types of facilities around the world will be subject to routine inspections. What happens is that chlorine is so ubiquitous, the organization would spend an enormous amount of time just inspecting chlorine facilities around the world. So it's not on the list for inspection purposes. However, anyone, any country that uses a toxic weapon to kill people 
has violated the convention. The convention covers all toxic chemicals. The inspection regime of necessity had to narrow itself down to the most likely suspects. And chlorine being a chemical that quickly became outdated as a chemical weapon, even in World War I, was not included on the list. But you know, in the case of Syria, they have found a use for it, once again, a very lethal one. Uh, Mr. Bodhi, it's sort of a uh, common saying around here that there aren't military solutions to many of the problems we face in the Middle East, and that probably oversimplifies the fact there's military components to most of these fights, but uh, our, uh, our military action in Libya um, is probably as good an example of uh, our failure to understand that you can't have a military solution without a political component and political plan underlying that military action, given that it was uh, our military action that led to the fall of Gaddafi uh, that created this vacuum that still exists today. Uh, this is probably an unfair question to ask somebody who's not on the ground yet, but you're studying your new post. Um, what lessons um, have we learned uh, about uh, our military engagement in Libya that at the time was not partnered with a political plan that was realistic on the ground is the lesson that we just shouldn't get into the business uh, of trying to use military power to depose brutal dictators if we don't have a political plan is the lesson that y you you need to do more planning ahead of time what what, what should we be thinking about as the lessons coming out of uh, our I think at this point failed military intervention in Libya I won't characterize your question as an unfair question, but I think it's a question I've been asking myself in a different fashion, and it's one that I think I'm going to be finding the answer out over the months to come. It does take me back, though, to a, what we're looking to do right now, is I think one of the things that's happened <coughs> post what happened four years ago is the lack of governance, the lack of rule of law, the lack of security. The sum total of all this has created a situation that's untenable. And that's why I think it's so important that we continue our efforts on this government of national accord until we can have some form of inclusive government, until we can bring as many of the parties in Libya together to get things back on a new normal. All of the problems that will continue to exist. But what I'd like to do is take that question and come back to you in a few months after I'm on the ground and give you a much, much more realistic and an answer based on my experience there. I think that's fair. Um, Mr. Sievers, um, uh, talk to me about the potential role that Oman plays in the Syrian political process. Um, this is a government that prides itself on trying to be uh, a, a broker or, or at least put themselves in the position to be a broker. Um, we've heard some optimistic testimony from the administration about uh, a political process that's going to kick off at the end of this week. Uh, what, what role may Oman be able to play as that, play, as that continues? Um, Senator, I believe that there was a meeting a couple of days ago between the uh, Omani Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, Yusuf Ben Alawi, and President Assad. Um, that was uh, the first uh, Omani contact that I'm aware of at that level. Um, so it does appear that they are um, stepping up their engagement. They have not been uh, so far a major player uh, in regional efforts to uh, uh, to uh, find a, uh, a negotiated solution, um, but it does appear that uh, that they are now uh, 
becoming more engaged as, uh, as various uh, elements of diplomacy uh, come into play. So I think uh, it's something that we need to engage with them on um, very intensively uh, in the days ahead, but uh, it, is a, it is actually a pretty new development. Their role elsewhere uh, has been to uh, promote uh, uh, diplomatic solutions to uh, regional crises when, when they've been able to do so. So do, that's their approach. Do they have a, do they have a position on whether Assad uh, has to go, uh, has to stay, has to stay for an interim period of time? As far as I'm aware, they have not taken a public position yet uh, on that. Um, but uh, I think we, we, we should get a, a, a more detailed readout uh, from the Omanis um, about this meeting, and, and hopefully we'll know more about that. I'd be happy to uh, arrange for, uh, for a briefing for you on that once we, once we have that information. I don't know at this time. Ms. Millard, um, so really uh, touching tribute to your husband, um, and uh, we're very sorry for your loss. Um, um, you talked, uh, I thought it was very interesting, your response to Senator Risch about the, um, the location of some of this recruitment, and, and it speaks to this dependence that uh, Tajikistan has uh, on Russia, um, a country that has potentially massive undeveloped economic capacity, natural resources, potential for hydropower, um, sort of linking you to the guy at the other end of the table here. What's the opportunity for U.S. Um, aid and, and U.S.-backed development to try to bring this country to a point where it isn't so reliant on Russia for the economic well-being of so many that travel across the border to bring home a paycheck for their family? Thank you for the question, Mr. Senator. Um, certainly, the links that Tajikistan has with uh, its immediate neighbors and Russia we are there, they're a historic fact. Uh, that said, Tajikistan wants a multi-vector foreign policy, and that gives us an opportunity uh, to work with them on a, in a number of different areas. Um, and there are a lot of needs there. So in our assistance program, we focus on a broad range of areas, uh, including you know, in, uh, improving the investment climate, uh, you know, food security, education, health, uh, women, girls. So I think there are a lot of opportunities for us. Um, and I will be sort of taking an inventory of what we are doing, uh, if confirmed, and seeing where there might be more opportunities for us. Mr. Chairman, if I could ask just one last question. It's actually for all, all three of you. Um, you know, I've uh, just been in this role in the Foreign Relations Committee for three years, but I've had the chance to travel to um, a lot of uh, posts around the world, which are difficult places for uh, foreign officers, especially young foreign officers, to serve. And that would be uh, the category of all three of your, your posts. Um, so as you've, um, as you've served in a variety of leadership capacities, um, what have you learned about the ways in which you can create um, a, a, a uh, and, and listen, you're, Mr. Bode, you're going to 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 you know a place that um, that everyone who gets assigned will think twice about, given the history. What, what have you learned about the way in which you can create a, a positive working environment, culture for your employees, despite the fact that it's pretty tough uh, territory? Jeremy, if I can answer first, one of the things I've learned, Senator, is the tougher the post. The, usually the higher the morale is, and it speaks to the dedication of my colleagues, particularly my young colleagues in the Foreign Service. But 
young colleagues are new colleagues, and they need nurturing, they need mentoring. And I found that for every moment I spend mentoring, the payoff both to the mission, the post, and to the State Department writ large is so large, it's just something we all have to do. And it's something even as an ambassador. Normally, in a post, this falls to the Deputy Chief of Mission has the line responsibility for this. In Nepal, I spent an hour every two weeks after our country team meeting with all of my untenured officers, all the specialists, talking about a leadership issue and then talking about a life experience, just trying to teach them the lesson that here's how I did it, here's the mistake I made. You're gonna make different mistakes, but at least you have the benefit of mine. And what I found is they're like sponges, they soak it up. The other thing, sir, is we're blessed with, I think all of us would agree, we're in one of the best careers and jobs in the world. And mo most people in the Foreign Service, once they realize the interesting work they get to do, that's a motivation itself. And it's our job as leaders to keep that spark going and to give them real responsibility and get them out there. Senator, if I may, um, these are really tough questions, uh, particularly in, in areas of the world where uh, posts are often going unaccompanied, uh, uh, people can't plan very well. Uh, they go into a, into a post expecting one set of circumstances and then it changes and families are evacuated. Um, I think the State Department's in, uh, investing enormous efforts in um, helping people cope with these situations, um, but it's very tough. Uh, it, it varies considerably from place to place. I feel very fortunate that Oman is a, is a country that where we still, uh, we have families, we have an excellent American school, we, we have very good morale by all uh, indications uh, that I've received, uh, but that obviously maintaining that uh, is something that has to be a very, very high priority uh, I agree with my colleague, uh, Ambassador Bodie, that, that we're attracting excellent people uh, to the Foreign Service uh, in all of our agencies. And I've, I've also worked very closely with uh, colleagues in the military and in other agencies. And across the board, I think people feel a sense of commitment uh, to American values and to representing the United States abroad and to uh, promoting American interests. Um, but uh, they want to hear from us, from those of us in leadership position, um, how we see things, where we see things going. They want a certain amount of transparency about the challenges that we face. Uh, and so it's incumbent on us as leaders uh, to share that information with them on a regular basis uh, and to try to address their questions as often and as uh, accurately as we can. Sometimes there are things that, that we can't uh, talk about, but, but most of it... Uh, can be shared, and, and I think that pays a, a great deal of benefit. So, Senator, both of my colleagues have mentioned a, a number of things that have been certainly high on my agenda, um, such as mentorship, leadership. Um, I would like to add, in a isolated, difficult posts, I think people-to-people -people contacts can be tremendously rewarding for everyone at the embassy, from the most junior person to feel that they can get out and perhaps give a presentation on some aspect of American life or American culture. And these uh, kind of presentations can be tremendously rewarding for the, the young person giving them, but also give uh, wonderful new contacts for us as we uh, represent the United States abroad. Um, so that's something I've observed and something I hope to continue in Tajikistan if confirmed. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman.
<clears throat> Thank you, Senator. I'm going to wrap up here in just a minute. Before I do, uh, I, I want one other line of questioning for you, Mr. Warden. If, if you're uncomfortable in going down this road, uh, please say so and we can pursue it in a, in a different uh, setting. Um, you talked about the, uh, and, and I think it's fairly well accepted by the international community that, uh, uh, that the Assad regime has used chemicals, even after they said they wouldn't, even after they joined the CWC, even after they made all the commitments. And uh, they have a partner today, Russia. What, what role does uh, Russia play in the, the organization? And, you know, it, it, when you're standing on this side of it, these things are, are stunning because, I mean, if the U.S. was involved with a, with a, a partner, that was doing this sort of thing. I mean, we'd wash our hands of it very quickly or stop it one or the other. And they obviously are not lifting a finger and yet they'd have the same information that you would that the, that the international community has. What, what can you tell us about that? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your question. You know, I, I, this has been a, a bit of an education for me in international diplomacy because what you learn sometimes is that even though we might disagree with a country on a whole host of issues, sometimes we can find common cause on an issue. And I know when Secretary uh, Kerry and Foreign Minister Lavrov got together in September of 2013 and basically found a way to at least remove chemical weapons from the Syrian civil war equation, even though they probably couldn't agree about anything else about that civil war, both of them saw the value in removing chemical weapons from it. And Russia has been a good partner in helping to address this dimension of the problem. When the fact-finding missions came out and said use has taken place, Russia, they were a little resistant at first, but they came along, and in August, a UN Security Council resolution was adopted with Russian support, Resolution 2235, which established a mechanism, the Joint Investigative Mechanism, to actually attribute responsibility for the attacks that had been confirmed by the OPCW. Russia actually supported that step. And that process is just coming up and running now, and the allegations from 2014, as well as any new uh, confirmation of use that comes along, is going to be investigated by this UN group and then reported to the Security Council. So I, I, I went into this process with your skepticism. You know, we're having issues with them in other areas. How can they be a good partner here? But the time I've spent traveling from my current job to The Hague and working with Russian colleagues, they have been cooperative on this issue and pushing this forward. And now we're in a position to actually try to hold people accountable, governments accountable, for the use of chemical weapons in Syria. It's a remarkable achievement, given, as you have emphasized, the other areas where there really is a complete disconnect between the United States and Russia. Well, uh, let me say that um, I'm not going to be as generous as you are to the Russians. I, uh, I, I, first of all, I appreciate them supporting the resolution, and that was the right thing to do, and they should have done it. Having said that, uh, everything we get is they've got uh, virtual control uh, jointly with the Iranians over the Assad regime, which couldn't survive a day without those two uh, supporting them. It would seem to me that uh, if they are as serious and as acting in good faith as you perhaps suggest, it wouldn't take but a phone call 
uh, from an individual, you know who I'm thinking of, to uh, Assad saying, this isn't gonna happen again or we're out of here. And so I'm not gonna be as generous to them as you are. Uh, and uh, we'll, um, I've got some other questions in that regard, but probably a different setting is appropriate for it. So with that, uh, thank all of you for your service. Thank you to your families uh, for supporting this service uh, to the people of the United States. Uh, the, these, th these things are uh, incredibly important to our success around the world. And uh, with that, we're going to close the hearing. The record will remain open, however, for questions uh, until the close of business on Friday. So uh, you may get some more probing questions, uh, but uh, you've been uh, very generous with your time and I think very candid with your answers. And uh, Senator Murphy and I both uh, deeply appreciate uh, that. So with that, the hearing will be adjourned.